Ramble. My dogs will eat anything. I mean, I have two Frenchies and it's a daily struggle to keep them from trying to eat toilet paper, bees, even trash. My dogs have no idea what's good for them. And you know, that's okay because their job is to be cute. My job is to take care of them to the best of my ability. That is why I only buy the farmer's dog dog food. Think about it. Most dog foods claims it's made out of whole ingredients. But then why does it come in the form of these very crusty pellets? But dogs will eat anything you give them, even dry kibble. Most dog food claims that they're made out of whole ingredients. But when I stare at these dry kibbles, it's very hard for me to see the whole ingredients. And I always had to mix in bone broth or water because it would be so dry that my dogs would eat too quickly and they would hack it up. It just didn't look tasty. The farmer's dog believes that all dogs deserve to eat real fresh food. That's why farmer's dog dog food is made from whole wheat and veggies and gently cooked in human grade kitchens to preserve nutritional value. It makes me feel so good seeing my dog's little tails wagging. Sometimes Mango's entire butt will shake when it's time for their dinner because they know and I know that they're eating fresh healthy food. It genuinely looks like human food. I've noticed such an improvement in how shiny and soft their coat is and their breath doesn't teleport me into another dimension anymore. I can see the veggies in their food. I mean my dog always gains a little bit of weight this time last year just because they move around less when it gets a little bit colder. So I feel like it's very important to always watch portions in the winter months. The farmer's dog makes it easy to monitor my dog's portions. Our dog's meals arrive in pre-portioned ready-to-serve packs which is super convenient. All you need to do is tell the farmer's dog about your puppy or your dog and they'll deliver personalized vet-developed recipes for as little as $2 a day. And you can adjust the recipe selection, portion sizes, and delivery cadence according to your needs and schedule. Get 50% off your first box of fresh, healthy food at thefarmersdog.com slash mango. That's 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash mango. Bada bing, bada boom. Welcome to this week's mini-sode of Rotten Mango. I'm your host, Stephanie Sue, And let's talk about these two guys. These two guys, they're in their cars racing. They're at pedal to the metal, speeding for very different reasons, but it just seemed like time was of the essence. Peter's stepping on the pedal because his wife is sick. He needs to get to her ASAP. He's worried about her. What if something happens before he gets there? What if she's seriously sick? Larry's in his car. He's confused. He's speeding. He's panicked. He had just seen his girlfriend earlier in the day, but now he's worried that something happened to her. She's not picking up her phone. Weird things were happening recently. Someone broke into her house. Someone gave her a flat tire. They deliberately let the air out of just one tire. What if she's not answering because someone got to her? What if they hurt her? Both men were in their cars, just hands gripping on that steering wheel until their knuckles turned white. They were racing to the same woman. And they both knew it. Maybe they secretly hoped that the one that would get there first will be the one that she chooses. But both of them would walk away alone, head hung, tears forming in their eyes, grief just taking over every part of their body because she would choose neither of them. She couldn't choose between them because someone had taken her life. As always, full show notes are available at RottenMinglePodcast.com, but there is, you guessed it, an amazing book on this case by Ken Englade called To Hatred Turned. It's a really good book. Ken is a reporter. He's able to do a deep dive into this, this complex case, and the attention to detail is amazing considering there's so many messy people involved. There is not one person in this case where I'm like, oh, that's a normal person. His writing style is captivating. He's incredibly informative, but it also, like the book makes you feel the beating heart of the case. It makes you feel for the people that are involved. So with that being said, let's get right into it. 
Joy and Larry had just arrived at the party, hand in hand. You know, they're a cute couple. They're married. They have a kid. And, you know, most married couples at that stage would be overwhelmed by the stress of life, the stress of parenting. Maybe one's a gentle parent. One wants to be an authoritarian. One wants to work. One does. Like, it's, there's a lot of marital problems. But Larry and Joy... They were acting like newlyweds, hugging, kissing, holding hands. It's like that they were at a college frat party. Honestly, this is the very type of energy that would have me smiling at them across the room like a little creep, thinking to myself, see, love is real. Love, if you just keep trying at it, love is a thing. We can make it work, you know? Love is not dead. Forget the divorce rates. And sure, maybe luck is on their side. They were rich. Larry even bought Joy a new Porsche and a Rolex. Come on, lot to be happy about. But if you're like me, standing there, smiling at them, watching them, being enamored with each other from across the room, someone might come up to you. You know, it's actually weird. What? The full story. You don't know what happened with them? That couple over there, they're weird? Oh, nobody told you. Tell me what? That how cute they are? I don't don't get it. Those two were married for a while, and they were about to get divorced. Papers were filed. It was a nasty, nasty divorce, I tell you. Financially, emotionally, it got really gross. The rumor, though, is that he cheated on her with one of his clients and wanted to divorce her so he could marry the other woman. Okay, but they look happy now. Yeah, well, a few days before their divorce was finalized, the other woman was murdered. I heard the crime scene was horrific. What? Whoever did it is absolutely sadistic, but I mean, it's unsolved. And after that, it seems like he went crawling back to her for support. I heard he still talks about the other woman. I heard he still like grieves her death in front of the woman he cheated on her with. Isn't that kind of crazy? Wow, that's a lot. But who are we to judge, right? Marriages are hard. They're tough. And Larry knew that firsthand. He had been married to Joy, cheated on her, and then the love of his life was murdered. He didn't know why. He didn't know how. But he knew that he needed some emotional support. So he found himself going back to his wife. But as he's laying next to her at night, she would be fast asleep and he would stay up thinking about why would someone take his precious Roseanne from him? And the answer would come in the form of a phone call. It was an anonymous phone call that Larry could not trace. He picked it up and the other party said it was a woman. They said, Larry, I understand that you were shot. I can tell who did it. Do you want to know? I also understand that a friend of yours, a very special friend of yours, was murdered a few years back. Do you want to know who did it? Yes, of course. The answer to the riddle is why. That's the answer. And they hung up. So I know what you're thinking, okay? It's got to be one of the, it's got to be the husband, the mister, the other man, the other woman. Like it's, it's a complicated love square. Maybe it's one of those people. Mm -hmm. It's actually none of those people. It was a guy named Andy and Andy has his own secrets. But before we get to Andy, let's talk about the couples. We've got two couples and both of them, they wanted to save their marriage. Not in the typical way of going out and finding a little couples therapist and trying counseling. No. Joy and Larry get a call from a doctor who wants their services to save their marriage. You're like, what kind of services? This is getting weird. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about Joy. Joy Davis was part of a respectable Dallas-based family. Joy's dad was someone that was a familiar face in the community. He's a pretty intense guy. Like, he's intimidating. He, He seems like the type that's just funny enough that he's not unlikable. But he has a presence, like an authoritative 
vibe to him the ones that are so respected that when they do finally crack a joke with you you almost feel kind of special in a way Mm. Uh, like wow this person kind of likes me it's clear that he was someone to be reckoned with i mean just look at this guy's story henry davis joy's dad started as a tile setter that was his claim to riches spending long grueling hours in the texas heat setting them tiles listen this particular job at the time did not pay well. Like, not at all. Henry wasn't the biggest guy. He wasn't the toughest guy, but he was shockingly durable. It's like those Navy SEAL stories. It's never the toughest or the strongest. It's like the most unexpected. Henry was the Navy SEAL of tile setters. So while his crewmates had to take regular breaks so that they don't overheat, Henry is able to work through the heat, lay tile after tile, just throwing it down. And he put his passion into everything that he did. And I say that because uh, this guy was the definition of work hard, play hard. He would go to work, spend 10 hours setting tiles in the heat, and then go to a poker game. And this is the type of guy that just would always come home with money. (laughs) He's not a loser. He's not even a normal person where you have wins and losses. He's just straight up a winner. (laughs) Wow. His wife, Frances, would scream at poker again, Henry. One day you're going to lose it all and we're screwed. Just stop now while we've made some money. You want to gamble away all our money? Is that what you want? And he would put his hands in his pockets, you know, (laughs) sheepishly whip out a few stacks of bills. And he would watch as Frances tried not to be too happy because remember, she was just lecturing him. (laughs) And she can't suddenly just be giddy because he won money. But let's be real. Francis really liked the money. For example, one night, Henry comes home after a long night. This guy reeks of alcohol. It's, it smells like he made his own strained concoction of a vodka bath bomb and bathed in it. It was, it was just bad. Francis is like, Henry, are you kidding me? Not this shit again. Francis didn't even have to ask what he was out doing. She knew it was poker. It was always that damn game, wasn't it? She was so angry and Henry's sitting there smiling at her, shit-faced. A spectacular idiot, she thought. She's like, no, I... A spectacular idiot. (laughs) I am not going to be the only one that's mad. I'm not going to sit here and waste my energy yelling at this guy and he's fucking smiling at me. I don't think so. So she goes over to the bathroom, filling the tub with water. She's like, I'm going to sober him up. And then I'm going to unleash my full fury on this guy. He's going to be conscious for every single word of it. She fills up the bathtub with cold water, throws him in clothes, shoes, socks and all. Henry was semi-conscious. So, I mean, probably dangerous, but it didn't look like Francis cared. But as the water levels rose, a $20 bill floated to the top and started bobbing around. Like those little games where you have to get the apple bobbing. This is so unhygienic. I don't know why this is a game, but they have like a tub of water and you try to get an apple with your mouth and the apples are just bobbing and you try to bite the apple. But it's the Who same this? water. You know, you play it when you're in like middle school. So it, it was kind of like apple bobbing. And then another 20 came out and another. And soon enough, the surface of the water was bobbing with wet $20 bills. And Frances looked down at her semi-conscious husband who is gaggling and gurgling on bathwater. But instead of looking at him with eyes of disgust and anger, like, geez, get it together. She looked at him with full-on hearts in her eyes. Like, this guy is gulping down dirty bathwater. And she's like, you know, love is funny. My poor thing, let me get you washed up. You were hard at work today. It was a lot of money. And at this point forward, Francis said, I'm going to let him do his thing. And we are going to use this money to make us rich. So they start investing. 
And her husband was a moneymaker. Like I said, Henry was just the type of guy that always came home with money. And this is just the start. So Henry and Francis used all that money that they had won to invest it into tile. Not tile setting, but tile, the actual source material. And this was um, a really perfect timing because after World War II, tile became scarce. So scarce, in fact, that contractors were willing to pay almost any price for it. That was the first business that Henry set up setting tiles, and then selling tiles. Who knew that the cost of tiles was going to be that crazy? And he knew exactly how much it was worth. He knew which ones were good. He knew how to sell a damn tile. And why stop there? Once Henry sold you his damn tile, he would sell you his services to help set that tile. Why trust anybody else when Henry knows most about the tile that you're about to set? Henry became the ultimate tile contractor. His work was in such high demand in Dallas that at any given point, he usually had about 25 projects going on, which I think is honestly just so fascinating because sometimes the most random jobs are the most lucrative. I saw a TikTok that was like, the more random a job, the more rich that they are. Like if they manufacture springs for the inside of pens, they're bajillionaires. It's like so random, but so lucrative. This is kind of the vibe. It's not even real estate development. He's just setting like kitchen tiles, bathroom tiles. That's his whole shtick. By the time that his two daughters were grown, Henry was worth tens of millions of dollars. And this was a guy that was just setting tiles. And Frances, well, she wasn't trying to drown him anymore. Yeah, she was just dripping herself in jewels, honestly, whipping around in her Cadillac. She loved the money. Henry never got into it. Henry loved making money, but he preferred his pickup truck and his little work shorts every day. And the two of them would go on to have three daughters, Carol, Joy, and Elizabeth. Elizabeth was 11 years younger than Joy. So there's a huge age gap between the last one and the first two. So Carol, and then three years later, Joy, and then 11 years later, Elizabeth. So being the firstborn, it seemed like Carol had her pick. Even over the baby of the family, Carol was like the queen bee. Whatever Carol wanted, she was going to get it. And when she was in high school, she demanded a convertible as her first car. Her parents are millionaires. They get it for her. Carol wants to go to college, full tuition paid. Carol wants to get married, full crazy blowout wedding, tens of thousands of dollars on flowers. And you're like, okay, well, obviously they're rich, so why don't they spoil their kids? It's not that crazy. But years later, when Joy was accepted into college, they refused to send her. Like, it was bizarre. So it's, they favored the first daughter. Yeah, but so clearly to the point where it, they didn't even try to hide the favoritism. Now, to be fair, Carol did have some things going on in her life. She had some mental health problems that would later result in psychiatric hospitalizations. She found herself in very toxic relationships ever since she was young, and a lot of them would turn violent, mainly with Carol being the aggressor. She loved to throw shoes at boyfriends. I'm not talking a, a flip-flop here and there. I'm talking full-on, like, steel-toed work boots. She wanted to find the highest-impact shoe and chuck it at the boyfriend's face, full speed. Joy's relationships were a lot less climactic. She was, like, the tame one compared to Carol. So maybe that's why the parents focused on Carol, to maybe appease her so that she doesn't throw another tantrum, which was, like, her life specialty and passion. Joy's first relationship started completely by accident. She was supposed to go on a date with a, with a guy. Let's call him Adam, right? Adam's a nice kid from their high school. He's chill. He worked in his free time at a supermarket bagging groceries. You know, he's nice. It's not the best choice, but Joy was into him. So they had a date planned for Saturday. It's like the weekday right now. Adam comes into work and he's like, fuck. He's complaining. He's kicking his feet. And his coworker, Larry, another high school student, is like, what's wrong? I'm scheduled for Saturday night. So? So that means I can't take Joy Davis out on a date. 
And Larry thought for a moment. And I mean, what's the normal response to this? Probably like, do you want to change shifts with me since I'm off? Or maybe you just stay quiet and say, well, that sucks, kiddo, because I want my Saturday off. But not Larry, not our boy Larry, ever the opportunist. <laughs> Larry said. <laughs> what does Larry say? He said, well, in that case, do you mind if I take her out? <laughs> just so she won't sit at home by herself. And I guess Adam wasn't that into joy because he goes, whatever, why the hell not? What? And that's how Joy ended up on a date with Larry when she was supposed to date his coworker. Just a kind of a strange story, I tell you. Larry put on his best clothes, walked straight up to Joy's door. He's probably like, <clears throat> hi, Joy. No. Hey, Joy. <clears throat> no. How are you doing, Joy? Hey, Joy, I'm Larry. <sighs> okay. Fork. So the door swings open and Larry's just in shock and he's staring straight into another guy. Who the hell is this guy? I'm the owner of this house. No, I'm kidding. It's Carol's boyfriend, Michael. And Larry's staring at Michael. And in the back, he just hears yelling. Like, it sounds like the reboot of Bad Girls Club. It's a lot of yelling. It's a lot of yelling inside this nice, regular, schmegler suburban home. Oh, um, I'm, I'm here for... Yeah, yeah, what do you want? Uh, I have a date with Joy. I'm Larry. Am I at the right house? Michael looks him up and down and says, yeah, come in. So Larry walks in, just taking everything in. The house was nice. I mean, it's the Davis family. They're rich. Joy runs up and grabs Larry by the arm and is like, come, come, come to the living room. And they're still yelling going on. Michael runs past the living room towards the back door, full speed, Olympian style. And a girl with frizzy blonde hair is chasing him, waving a shoe in her hand. Larry is watching with amazement as it, it just all feels like it's slowed down. Michael almost makes it to the back door. The girl throws the shoe at him. It bounces off the back of his head. He's screaming, ow, what the hell? The blonde, frizzy-haired girl is screaming, take that! Get out of here! Where's my other shoe? Larry's eyes are bulging out of his head. Like, he's just sitting on the couch. And Joy is sitting next to him, just like staring at the whole thing as if it's completely normal. As if her family is just making pancakes for breakfast. Um, Joy, who is that girl? Oh, that's my sister. Like, just so... So freaking chill. Like her sister did not just throw a shoe at someone. It was quite the first impression, but it didn't matter because Larry was head over heels. You get the pun? He was head over heels for Joy. The two of them start seeing each other all the time. And unlike Joy, Larry did not come from a wealthy family. So he's just constantly working, trying to find time for Joy. And just like that, two of them get married, like 19 years old. They have their first and only child, Chris Ayler, and everything fell apart when their son was born. Well, at least according to Larry. He said Joy complained about how frequently Larry wanted to have sex. She just wasn't into it. She kept telling him, your sex drive is too strong. You are demanding too much. You are taking too long. And in Larry's naive mind at the time, he's thinking, wait, 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 wait. Who would have the perfect advice for something like this? Who would want to know about the ins and outs of Joy's sex life and her sex drive? How frequently she's having sex, what she likes and what she doesn't like? Ah, yes. I'm going to ask Joy's dad for advice. What? Yeah, let me just go ask my father-in-law about what to do because Joy is not having as much sex as I would like. I mean, listen, my dad is a pretty chill person, but if you asked him something like this, he'd probably punch you. <laughs> like, this is so beyond disrespectful, no? Yeah. <laughs> Your daughter's not putting out like the way that I want it, you know? Just not fulfilled. What? Not Henry, though. Poker face Henry, rich millionaire Henry, just straight up tells Larry, let me tell you something, kid. 
I've been around longer than you have. And uh, what do you think about a woman in her 20s who said she doesn't need sex? Uh, I, I don't know, sir. That's why I'm here asking you. That means you're not good enough. <laughs> <laughs> he, similar. He said, well, if you're not scratching it, someone else is. <laughs> what a freaking statement. Is I that true? Do you agree? I don't think so. I mean, sometimes you're just busy or stressed or yeah. you just don't have a... Everyone has different sex drives. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could say that the two of them were like pals. So Larry recently started working for Henry. At first, Larry was begging to do business with the Davis family. But later on, Henry being the businessman, he was like, you don't know shit about construction. Larry's like, I can learn. You can teach me. He's like, I'm not a teacher. I'm a businessman. So why don't you go and learn and then come back and talk to me? So Larry started at the bottom, started working as a carpenter, and within a year, he raised enough money to flip a house. And he did really well. He cleared $65,000 in profits when all was said and done. This was his big first business venture, and he killed it, and Henry was impressed. So the two of them, they go into business together. Larry also seemed to have the business touch. And soon, with the help of Henry, he's bringing in the money. They're living that upper-class life, driving Porsches, Jaguars, Rolexes. Larry even splurged on a 140-acre ranch where he wanted to raise a stable of horses. They are living the good life on the outside. It's the type of family where you're almost like, God, I wish I was their kid. I know it sounds weird to say, right? But that's kind of what you want to say. But Chris sounded like he had the perfect life. Joy and Larry, his parents, they spoiled the crap out of him. His grandparents, Henry and Francis, spoiled him even more. The grandparents spoiled him to the point where Joy had to step in and say, Mom, Dad, please stop. You're making him bratty. You can't just buy the kid everything that he wants. He's never going to learn the value of money. There was honestly a lot of tension about this. Joy felt like her parents were too much. And eventually, the grandparents started arguing that they wanted to raise Chris, which is bizarre to say the least. Joy was a stay-at-home mom. They made amazing money. So behind what reasoning would Chris go live with his grandparents, especially since Joy and Larry wanted Chris to stay with them? But he did. If I'm being honest, it feels more like a power move. What, what do you mean? I think, you know, I think at this point, Henry is trying to rein in Larry and Joy. He's seeing that they're becoming successful. He feels like he had a big hand in their success and he wants to still assert his dominance and his authority over them. To be mm. like, hey, don't forget who gave you this. So he takes the grandchild? Yeah, it's kind of like a, hey, at the end of the day, don't forget who's in charge. You're a big boss in front of your friends and, you know, all these other people. But in this house, I'm still the top dog. Okay. That's kind of the vibe that everybody was getting from Henry. Our apartment lease in New York City is almost up, which means it's time for that hunt for the perfect apartment again. And I'm sure everyone can agree to this, but when your apartment takes off all of the boxes, you feel so much happier being home. You look forward to going home, but it is hard. It is hard finding the perfect place, especially in a place like New York. For us, we need to have an in-unit washer and dryer. That is like a non-negotiable. We need to have hardwood floors because of my allergies. And we love any unit facing Southwest. That is golden hour prime time. And since we're not in New York City right now, we've been using Apartments.com to help us find our new home. Apartments.com has helped millions of renters find their perfect place with powerful search tools to help find a rental listing that checks all of your specific unique boxes. 
I love that there's a ton of 3D virtual tours, which have come in honestly so handy for us because we're constantly traveling these days. It saves us so much time and money, and it's really helpful for if you're moving to a new city. Maybe you're moving to the next town over. Saves you so much time. My favorite feature, though, is the amenity filters. So you can make sure your possible future home has all of the amenities you need. Like I said, in-unit washer and dryer. But you can even search for units with a balcony so you can enjoy a nice sunrise with your coffee. And once you find a new place that you like, you can even favorite them so they're all neatly organized. I get so excited to apartment hunt every night with my fiance. So visit apartments.com, the place to find a place. This is my favorite way to unwind at the end of a long day. I make myself some hot chocolate, I wrap up in my coziest blanket, and I become Detective June Parkett. I don't actually become a detective, but that's how I feel when I'm playing June's journey. You play as June, and the story starts with you flying from London to New York to investigate the suspicious murder of your sister and brother-in-law. But that's just the first in a very long line of suspicious murders. There's so many family secrets, twists, and you get to uncover all of these mysteries through a series of hidden objects games. Like you search for hidden letters or other objects that help you advance in the story. The storytelling in this game is impeccable. I mean, every detail is important. It stimulates you because you feel like a detective. The game takes June literally all around the world, from New York to Havana to Paris, and you get to meet all kinds of characters. I do not trust any new characters at this point because everybody seems to have a hidden motive. And as the story is progressing, you can learn about new characters as you collect bits of information to build your photo album. I also really love the dialogue in this game and just how immersive it is. There are some scenes where you really feel like you are Detective June. There's mystery, murder, danger, even romance. Sometimes it does get a little intense, so if I feel like taking a break from all the crazy plot twists, I go back to my little private island. Okay, it's not little, it's actually huge. It's called Orchid Island, and I get to decorate it in any way that I want. I have a waterfall on my island, and I'm currently making a train station route. There's just something so satisfying about getting to color code everything and make sure all the pieces fit. It's such a cozy yet thrilling game. It's almost as satisfying as puzzling the pieces of June's family's mysteries together because, listen, I'm telling you, my husband will definitely find me on the couch later today playing June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Chris just ended up becoming like a pawn in the family power struggle dynamic. I think Larry had a lot of resentment for Joy because of this. They, they are her parents after all. And Joy argued that Larry had a wandering eye. She suspected him of cheating on her with her own little sister, Elizabeth, who was a whopping 11 years younger. But then neighbors would also say that they saw Joy spending a lot of time talking to 19-year-olds that just graduated high school. So listen, I don't know what to say. All I can do is uh, reiterate that these people are very, very messy. Later, Joy's friend said, no, 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 no. Larry was the insane one. He demanded Joy would come to lunch at his construction sites. But then when she went and then the crew would look at her because, you know, she's a beautiful girl. He would blame it on her. He would be like, you're leading on my crew. Like, what are you doing? So I don't know which one's true. I don't know which one's false, but it's just bizarre. Their marriage was on its last dying breath, holding on to a tiny shred of hope. Joy tried. She said she put a lot more work into her appearance. She started wearing makeup, revamping her wardrobe, got a boob job. But Larry hated the boob job. And she said, well, get used to it. They're staying, bro. Larry would later suspect that um, she was having an affair. All in all, it was just a backfired in the end, okay? It was a cold December that year. Larry didn't care. He wanted to go hunting in Texas Hill County. This was going to be his first vacation in a while, and it was he's a bit of a workaholic. So he's like, this is, this is my time. But during his hunting trip, Joy called him. Not even a hello. 
You need to get back to Dallas. What? Why? A doctor called and he wants you to build him a house. Well, did you tell him that I'm hunting right now? Yes, but he wants to talk. Now. Well, tell the doctor that I'll be back on Sunday. No, he's impatient to get started. He can wait. I'm going to finish my hunt and then I'll give him a call. So Larry was annoyed that his vacation was being interrupted. Why? Why so freaking eager? Why can't you just wait a few days? You think a house is built overnight? There are two things that Larry did not know. First thing is that this contract was going to change his entire life and so many people would die. And the second thing he didn't know was how desperately Peter Galianas needed this project. He needed it to save his marriage. Listen, there's a lot of reasons why someone might want to work in the emergency room. Maybe they want to work in the emergency room to save lives. Maybe for their career. Maybe to put it on their resume. But meeting women is really not on the top of my list of guesses. Peter was a kidney specialist and he took extra shifts in the ER so that he could meet women. It's weird, especially considering the fact that he was already in a committed relationship and he was nearing 30. So it's not like he had to settle down immediately. I mean, some people use Tinder. Some people work in the ER. I guess it worked. <laughs> Peter met Roseanne, who was a 27-year-old nurse working in the same hospital. Oh, so he's not even meeting patients. He's meeting nurse. Yeah. Oh, that's weird. I heard a lot goes down. In the ER? Oh, yeah. So Peter was smitten at first glance. He broke up with his girlfriend immediately. And the two of them, they just wanted to start fresh. They packed their bags, moved to Dallas. And within the span of a few months, you know, they get a new job. They move in together. They're in Dallas in a new city. And then Peter finds out that Roseanne, the nurse, is, well, she's married. She's like, but it's fine, Peter, because I'm currently working on getting a divorce. So it's not that big of a deal. I already filed for the divorce yesterday. <laughs> okay. And like three months after that, Roseanne falls pregnant. Now, keep in mind, the two have only been dating for like six to seven months. Both of them had different partners that they broke up with in order to be together. They didn't really know each other that well. They didn't have the chance to talk about big life topics such as, I don't know, childcare. So their son, Peter III, they just call him Little Peter, was born. And Peter wanted Roseanne to be a stay-at-home mom. He didn't even consider what she wanted in life. Roseanne did not want to be a stay-at-home mom. She wanted to continue working. I mean, obviously she loved her son, but being home nonstop was going to drive her insane. She thrived off of work. She just felt so understimulated and miserable. But Peter wasn't having it. And I mean, what could Roseanne say? She felt guilty for not wanting to be a stay-at-home mom. She would be financially cuff comfortable. She would devote her life to her son and her husband. I mean, technically, it was the right thing to do, wasn't it? So that was the start of her resentment. Peter got to keep his career. He got a wife. He got kids. He got everything. He got the best of all the worlds. And that bitterness, that seed of resentment, well, you know what they say about resentment in relationships. It's like bamboo. One seed is all it takes to create a forest. I actually don't know if anyone says that, but I'm saying that today. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense. It makes sense. Yeah. So combined with the boredom of staying at home, the resentment and the stress of looking over a newborn baby and the house, Roseanne starts to completely withdraw from Peter. She's not happy with her life. She's not happy with her marriage. And that's why Peter, kind of the idiot... I mean, the dude is smart in some aspects and not so smart in most aspects because you would think that the answer to this problem is to get Roseanne back to work, to find, you know, daycare services for little Peter. No, he's like, I'm going to build you your dream house, babe. She's like, I don't want a dream house. I don't even want to be home. I don't even care if it's a dream house or a shed. I don't want to be home. 
So he's finding ways to basically keep her home. Yeah, longer. like hold her hostage, essentially. Right. Okay. And um, he said every second was another second of seeing the disgust, the anger, and annoyance in his wife's face and his her eyes. And he thought the house was what she needed. And that is why he constantly reached out to Larry, even when he was on vacation. This is urgent. I need a day ASAP. But it all backfired. Because here's how it happened. Larry drove up to the address for the doctor's house. I mean, yikes. Just driving up the road, he had a bad impression. The doctor's current house, Peter's house, was a ranch-style brick house surrounded by tall pine trees. And you're like, that sounds like the dream. Why is it bad? There was no natural light coming through. Someone had darkened the windows of this tiny little ranch. The whole ranch had a creepiness to it. Larry said he felt like he was driving up to the Adams family house. When he went to the front door, a handwritten note was taped. Please do not ring the bell. The baby is sleeping. So Larry's rolling his eyes. Lovely. Now he's got to go around the back. Jesus Christ. He came back from hunting to this. The whole vibe is off. He walks around to the back. Just, oh, what am I doing here? At least I don't have to worry about being kidnapped, you know? Wait, should I be worried about being kidnapped? This house is pretty creepy. God, just my luck to get a house like this. So Larry walks around to the back and softly knocks on the kitchen door. And he's still looking at his feet, cursing himself like, Jesus, and they can't even maintain the back. Uh, And then the door flings open and Larry finds himself staring at the most beautiful woman he has ever seen in his life. He said the breath was almost knocked out of him. She had these big, beautiful, dark eyes, this luscious black hair. She was holding a chicken leg in her left hand. I don't know if that added to the sexiness or the allure. The woman quickly gulped down the piece of fried chicken in her mouth. She wiped her mouth sheepishly and she's like, oh God, sorry, I thought it was my neighbor. You must be here to see my husband about the house, right? Uh, that's right, yes. Well, please come on in. I'm still feeding little Peter, my son, but Peter, my husband, uh, will be right with you. Oh God, I I apologize for not removing the sign on the door. Um, I just forgot. Oh, uh, don't worry, it's not a big deal at all. So Larry is guided into the living room, which was just as welcoming as the outside of the house. The whole interior was still very much giving Adam's family. There wasn't even a light source in the living room. It was just the TV that was playing with no sound. Nobody was watching. It was quite depressing. Larry awkwardly sat down, expecting Peter to walk into the room any second now. But he wouldn't. Not for at least another 20 minutes. Larry was fuming at this point. What kind of guy demands you come home from freaking vacation, makes you come into their creepy little house, and leaves you waiting for 20 minutes? If I can wait 20 minutes for your appointment, you can wait for me to be done hunting. Yeah, that's kind of rude. But Larry the professional didn't want to make a scene. He stood up to greet Peter with a firm handshake. Peter had this imposing figure. He was tall, but very bony. He had these broad, bony shoulders, large ears that stuck out from the side of his head. Uh, I'm Larry. Nice to meet you, Peter. Peter immediately walks over to the bar, pours himself a drink. Never ask if Larry wants one. Doesn't even ask Larry if he wants water. No small talk, nothing. Peter just got straight down to business. I mean, Larry had run into all types of people while working. He knew Peter's type. Peter thought he was better than everyone. He was full of himself. The hired help doesn't need water. But Larry kept it professional. He listened intently to Peter's proposal. Uh, They wanted to build a dream house for himself, his wife, their four-year-old son, and it was going to be located near downtown Dallas. But before Larry got into the specifics, Peter's like, Honey, Roseanne, can you come in here? Roseanne inches into the room and sits on the couch. Listen. For someone building their dream house, Roseanne looked like she would rather be anywhere else. Usually, both parties are really excited for their dream house. I mean, I would say that the stay-at-home spouses may be more excited. 
But Roseanne looked like she was sitting on an HOA meeting about rose bushes being untrimmed in the neighborhood. She looked bored out of her mind. Larry kept sneaking peeks at her while he talked to Peter about the details. He didn't want to make it obvious, but wow, she was stunning. But regardless of Roseanne's enthusiasm for the house, regardless of Larry's secret attraction to Roseanne, the house construction proceeded. Construction at the Galliana's house began the next month, and as usual, Larry would oversee the construction of the exterior while his wife, Joy, worked on the interior design. Peter seemed invested on the whole project, but even with the construction, the reality of their dream house becoming closer and closer, Roseanne's heart was just not in it. Larry could tell. He could even see Peter's pointless attempts to try to get her excited. He'd, honey, can you stop by the house tomorrow and check up on how the bathroom mirror is coming along? I know you've always wanted a rain shower, so I asked Larry to install a rain shower for you. And Roseanne would pretend like she cared about the damn rain shower. But everyone, including Peter, knew that she didn't give a shit. One morning, late in April, a few months into the construction, Peter asked Roseanne to visit the house. Again, that she didn't give a shit about. So Larry, he didn't complain. He liked having her around much better than having Peter around that time that she comes around. Roseanne doesn't just look sad. She looks full on depressed. Larry felt compelled to ask her out to lunch. I mean, he tried to rationalize with himself. I mean, I need to make sure my customers are happy, right? That's part of the job. So Larry asks her out to lunch so that they could talk. And over meatloaf and iced tea, Larry asks Roseanne, what's wrong? And the question just opened up the floodgates. Roseanne starts crying over her meatloaf. I just don't want to build this house. And it isn't you and it isn't the house. I'm sure the house will be beautiful, but I never wanted it in the first place. Larry didn't understand, so he tried to listen. Peter and I are having problems. And as soon as the house is finished, I'm out of here. Larry nodded. He understood. I'm so sorry. I I had no idea. I mean, I know you didn't. And maybe I shouldn't have even told you, but... No, 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 I'm glad. It's okay, Roseanne. I'm glad that you told me because now I know what you're going through. And if it makes you feel any better, Joy and I have been having problems too. In fact, we're talking about getting a divorce. Oh, I'm so sorry. Don't be. It happens. But I'm glad that you told me because it means that we have a lot more in common and I'm on the same boat as you. Roseanne looks up at him over their iced tea and now probably cold meatloaf and she put her hand over his. Well, tell me about you and Joy. And so he did. They both opened up to each other very quickly about how miserable they were in their relationships. And before long, they were having a steamy affair. They were sneaking off to see each other multiple times a week or sneaking in phone calls just about every single day. And Larry finally decided it was time to leave Joy because you guessed it. Sure, they were having marital problems, but they weren't divorcing. Larry took it upon himself to get an apartment first, move out, and then tell Joy. Let's just say she didn't take it so well. She dashed out of the house into the car. She said that she drove to the local lake and parked along the shore to cry. She got out and started crying on the ground like a little six-year-old who dropped her ice cream cone is how she described it. And as her shoulders are jumping up and down in between sobs, a male jogger is like slowing down nearby. And he's like, oh, that's that's a weird sight. Should I, ma'am, are you okay? Yes, it's just that my husband told me he's leaving me. And he feels compelled to sit down next to her, and they hit it off. (sighs) Bro, and he hands her a piece of paper with his number and says, whenever you feel okay, call me. This 
fucking real like <laughs> do people just really do shit like that's this? crazy no yeah and it's speculated that this man was a guy named jody packer and joy started dating him just a few days after larry moved out she seemed like she had no trouble moving on Everyone is just moving fast in this one. Roseanne packed her bags and little Peter moved into a rental house in Dallas. And both Larry and Roseanne filed for divorces. And, you know, I don't know if they got a buy one, get one on it, but they both use the same damn divorce attorney for both their divorces. Roseanne starts working again as a nurse. And yes, it was as great as she remembered. She missed it so much. But then the trouble started. Peter wasn't dumb. Peter figured his wife was having an affair. He just didn't know it would be with the guy that was being paid to help build their dream house that was going to save their freaking marriage. I mean, Peter was shocked. He hired a PI to track Roseanne. He continued to harass Roseanne on his own. She filed for a restraining order. But somehow through all of this, she was still adamant on making co-parenting work. But it was terrifying. Roseanne was doing it for their son. If it was up to her, she would never see Peter again because he was starting to scare her. One time, Roseanne picked up Peter and she was holding one of little Peter's arms, heading for the door, and Peter grabbed his son's other arm and yanked it back. What are you doing? Let go of our son. And he refused. Roseanne refused to let go. And after a quick little standoff, Peter runs off into his room and returns with a shotgun. And he screamed, if you try to take my son away, I'll shoot you. She hurried away into the car. Another time, Peter threatened to kill himself in front of Roseanne because that's what you want, isn't it? Roseanne was more disgusted than worried for him. She looked at the counter where there was a sandwich that was sitting on a plate. And she said, oh, yeah, well, can I eat the sandwich while I watch? And she walked off. Larry said Peter even harassed him. One time, Peter just shut up at his door. And Larry said it was terrifying. He wasn't even ringing the doorbell. He was just twisting the doorknob side to side, like jangling it. But slowly, like straight out of a horror movie. So Larry lets him in and he's like, is Roseanne here? No, Roseanne's not here. You want to come inside and check if that's what you want? So they go in and they sit on the couch and Peter went from being angry to just completely desperate. He put his head in his hands and he looked like he was about to cry. And when he looked up, he said, I want you to quit seeing my wife, please. Larry lied and said, I'm not seeing her. If you and Roseanne have some issues, that's between you guys. In the meantime, get the fuck out of my apartment and don't come back. Peter did not give up, though. He even went a step further and taped a phone conversation between Roseanne and Larry, and the two of them were talking shit about Peter and Joy. Well, Peter heard it, recorded it, and then sent it to Joy. He was okay. very happy with himself. We have no idea how Joy reacted to this, if she did at all, but we do know that Joy's relationship with her jogger boyfriend did not go according to plan. I guess they weren't getting along that well. She was having a hard time adjusting to the divorce. Her friend said that it wasn't that Joy missed Larry. Like, that wasn't the problem. She was kind of over Larry, but Larry was sending her threatening phone calls, and she was taking care of Chris, but Larry was trying to cut her off. So for them, it was more financial than like Peter and Roseanne. Peter wanted Roseanne back. On the flip side, Larry complained that he got harassing phone calls from Joy and her family. He said that Henry, Joy's dad, inserted himself into this situation and said, Larry, you better get your ass back home and forget that black-haired bitch. Joy was blonde, I believe. Not that it matters. So despite all of this drama, all the tension from both sides, from so many people really, Larry and Roseanne's relationship was flourishing. Both their families said that they had never seen either of them happier. But the tensions were really high. One night when Roseanne came back home from work, she opened the door only to discover that someone had broken into her house, shattered the kitchen window, and what was even more terrifying was the fact that nothing in the house was taken. 
Okay, so obviously having your house burglarized and having valuables stolen is horrible, miserable, right? But I feel like I would have more peace of mind knowing someone came in here with the intention of taking valuables versus somebody clearly broke into my house and the only thing missing seems to be the key for the very back door. What? Sounds like someone's going to come back, doesn't it? Yeah. She immediately called the police and a locksmith and she anxiously stood over the locksmith while he's changing the locks of the entire house. And I don't know if it's out of panic, out of desperation. She starts opening up to the locksmith. God, I know it's my ex-husband that did this. Well, I guess husband. We're not divorced yet, but we're getting divorced. And I know it was Peter. It would turn out that she was wrong. Peter did not do this. What? But I can see why she would think that. The couple was getting divorced officially in six days, the same day as Larry and Joy's divorce. They planned it all for the same day. It would be symbolic. Larry and Roseanne would start their new life together immediately. So with just six days to go, more odd things start happening to Roseanne. She had a flat tire, but it wasn't like she ran over a nail. She just got out of work and one of the tires, all the air was just let out. No hole, no puncture, nothing. Someone came in and just let it out. Larry was worried about that. He didn't like the sound of that at all. The broken kitchen window, the flat tire. I mean, are these two incidents connected? So what does Larry do? Does he get down to business on trying to figure out what's going wrong? Or is he like, hey, babe, do you want to come over to the house to do some paperwork, a.k.a. sex? So Roseanne comes over. They do the devil's tango. Uh, It's like a spicy hormone sandwich. And when they're done, Larry said, no, but really, I got to actually do some paperwork. So this is in the morning. He leaves her in the bed goes to his office to bury himself in paperwork. Roseanne comes in fully dressed not too long after, and she's like, knock, knock. Hey, I have to go. It's time for me to pick up little Peter. Larry glanced at his watch. Oh, shoot. I didn't even realize it was getting late. Yeah, you better get going, and we're still on for tonight, right? Yeah, of course. I'm going to come by as soon as I take Peter back to his father's. Okay, sounds good. And Larry started going back to his paperwork, thinking Roseanne had slipped out. Mm-hmm. But she hadn't. He looks up to see her standing at the door, tears rolling down her cheeks. And he gets up from behind his desk and he's, you know, pacing towards her. What's wrong? Why are you crying? Are you okay? What's wrong? Nothing. Then why are you crying? I'll just, I'm going to be very glad when this is all over. So Larry pulls her in for a gentle hug and they stood with each other for a few minutes. He wiped her tears and walked her to her car and it helped. Roseanne's mood brightened. It's like she forgot about whatever she was thinking about in the office. She buckled her seatbelt and she said, Have I told you how much I love you? No, you didn't. Not today. How much do you love me? She said the most and she drove off. I don't really like doing chores around the house. I'm going to be honest with you. And I especially used to hate doing laundry. It was just one of my more tedious tasks. It takes so much time and I often feel tempted to not even bother sorting out my clothes. But I've been trying to motivate myself to get a lot more organized and I finally found a way to make doing my chores so much more interesting, so much more engaging. And that's by listening to audiobooks on Audible. You guys know me. There is nothing like playing a good psychological thriller. So obviously that's what I've been listening to. I'm currently listening to The Housemaid by Frida McFadden. The main character, Millie, is out on parole and she's desperate for a job. She doesn't have any money. She's living out of her car and she gets this opportunity to be this rich family's housemaid. Millie agrees, even though there's just something really strange about the Winchesters, especially the wife, Nina. She just seems to love finding ways to make Millie's life very difficult. The family is hiding something and Millie is hiding something and there's just so much tension between Millie and the husband. It's one of those stories that you can't stop listening to and I can't wait to finish it and start the next audiobook in this series. 
But if Thriller is not your thing, don't worry. Audible lets you pick from thousands of titles to find the perfect soundtrack to your day. You can find audiobooks from any genre, fiction, nonfiction, wellness, self-help. But they also have podcasts like this one, guided wellness programs, comedy, and originals. Living life without using Audible is like eating food with no seasoning. Sure, you still get your nutrients in, but it's missing that extra flavor, you know? So if you want to spice up your day, I highly recommend Audible. Audible members can keep one title a month to keep from the entire catalog. New members can try Audible now free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash rotten or text rotten to 500 500. That's audible.com slash rotten or text rotten to 500 500 to try Audible free for 30 days. To be completely transparent with you, I am still at that stage in my life where if you tell me, hey, something's going to make you feel better or something's going to make your skin clear, I'll probably be like, give me the clear skin. But growing up is realizing that you can have both. And I have made it a habit to implement things in my life that let me have both. Did you know that your gut health really impacts your skin health? And not just skin, apparently your gut health can impact your immune system, your energy levels, even your mental health. That is why I've now added my favorite probiotic from Symbiotica to my morning routine. It sounds weird to say, but Symbiotica's health supplements are now part of my skincare routine almost. If you guys don't know, Symbiotica is a supplement company that only uses clean premium ingredients in its formulas. No seed oils, no fillers, no additives, no natural flavors, and no artificial ingredients. Symbiotica also formulates all of their supplements for optimal absorption. For example, I love their vitamin C so much, which is also really good for your skin. If you didn't know, everybody loves it. I mean, it's probably the most popular vitamin C amongst all of my friends and family. We love Symbiotica. Their vitamin C is formulated with liposomal technology, which basically means the vitamin C is delivered to the part of your digestive tract where it can be optimally absorbed. And I just love throwing one in my bag on the go, especially when I'm traveling. Symbiotica makes it so easy to stick to a routine, not just because of their supplements being great and tasting great and making me feel great, but also because they get delivered monthly. That means I never have to worry about refilling my supplements or running out and it's just so easy to pause a delivery or add a new supplement to my delivery. With Symbiotica, I've really noticed an improvement in my skin health, but also I feel like I have more energy and mental clarity. Symbiotica has countless high quality supplements that you can choose from. Sleep supplements, cognitive supplements, anti-aging supplements. If you're not sure which supplements would be best for your specific needs, you can do a short quiz on Symbiotica's website and they'll recommend what you could benefit from. This year is your year. Are you ready to feel the results? Head over to Symbiotica.com and use code ROTTEN for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. That's symbiotica.com and use code ROTTEN. For a neighbor or a passerby, maybe you're jogging by this house. It would look like a cute little family. This is suburbia after all, right? Suburban area, Dallas, Texas. What's the worst that could happen? She'd be late to pick up little Peter from school. Trader Joe's would run out of those mini ice cream cones. I don't think that anyone would look at the sight of those two of them in the driveway and think something very, very terrible was going to happen to both of them. Larry would never see Roseanne alive ever again. As he walked into the house after seeing her off, he couldn't shake that weird feeling of like, why did she randomly break down into tears? It didn't even look like tears of relief that the divorce was becoming finalized. It was just so strange. But divorce is strange, right? I mean, maybe it's just that. Besides, Larry had work to do and he was going to see her later that night and maybe she would just sleep over. It's safer that way. So nothing to worry about. Around noon, Roseanne texted Larry that she was taking little Peter to lunch, then to his ice skating class and she'd be home later. Call me. 3 p.m., Larry tries to call her. No answer. 
4.30 rolls around. She's still not answering. Larry starts getting worried. What if she has another flat tire? What if her phone is off? So he starts driving up and down different roads trying to retrace Roseanne's steps. Okay, so she picked up Peter, went to lunch, and then driving to the ice skating rink. Okay, she'd be parked on this side of the road. She was nowhere. So Larry goes back home waiting for her call. Around 6 p.m., little Peter calls his dad. He dials his dad's number and says, Hi, dad, where are you? I'm at home. You should be here. You're late. Where's your mom? She's sleeping. You didn't call me, did you? So side note, little Peter is super young. So Peter is doubting that his own son managed to operate a phone. Yes, I did. I called you myself. Oh, I didn't know you knew how to dial. Go get mom. I can't wake her up. She's sleeping. We'll go and try again. There was rustling on the other side. So Peter could hear his son leave the room and then come back. Dad, I really can't wake her up. She's sick. What do you mean she's sick? She's really sick. There's green stuff coming out of her mouth. Suddenly, Peter tensed. Are you okay? Yes. Is anyone in the house? No. Then lock the door and don't let anyone in. Daddy will be right there. They hang up. Less than 30 minutes later, little Peter is on the phone again. But this time, he's picking up an incoming call. Hey, Peter, it's Larry. Let me speak to your mom. She can't. She's sick. What? Where is she? She's in bed. Well, can you go get her? I know she'll want to talk to me. I can't. She's sick bad. And before Larry could respond, he heard a male voice, an adult screaming, hang up the goddamn phone. And the line went dead. This is interesting because we never find out exactly who the man that ordered little Peter to hang up. Little Peter was questioned later by the regular police officers, which is horrible because he should have been questioned by professionals who know how to work with kids. So the police just treated him like any other adult. They asked, who ordered you to hang up the phone? And little Peter initially pointed at his dad. But Peter denied that it was him. He said, I didn't do that. So when the police asked little Peter again, he just shrugged and said, nobody. So this is where it starts to get very fishy. First responders arrived at the house at 6.36 p.m. But Larry's call was placed 10 minutes after that. So it's possible that a police officer or a paramedic responded, hang up the goddamn phone, end quote. But that doesn't really make sense to me. Wait, so when Larry called, supposedly there are policemen in the house. Yeah. That's weird. Supposedly. Who called the police? We don't know. The husband? Like who? Maybe. Right. It's also possible that it was Peter in the house. Peter had been there first and messed with the crime scene is a huge theory that I'm not saying is true, but a huge theory. And we'll get into it later. So the paramedics get to Roseanne's house and they said that when they get there, the front door is open a bit. The first thing that they notice when they rush in is little Peter is sitting on the living room couch in the dark, eating a bowl of cereal. He was understandably shocked at the sight of paramedics storming into the house. I mean, paramedics are used to this. They've dealt with a lot of shocked adults, traumatized kids. But little Peter starts screaming at them. What are you doing here? Get out. My daddy doesn't want you here. If he finds out you're here, he'll beat you up and he'll tear your heads off. Listen, maybe this is how little Peter was taught to defend himself to potential kidnappers, to bullies and the likes. Like if a guy in a white van asks you to come in, what do you say? Daddy's going to tear your head off. But the paramedics remember it being oddly aggressive coming from a six-year-old. It's just a lot. One of the paramedics bent down and asked, is there anyone else here? Where's your mommy and daddy? To which little Peter yelled, you have to leave. I want you out of here. The paramedics decided to just ignore him. They just like were like, okay, disregard the kid. They walked straight down the hallway. They heard some faint moaning and heavy breathing coming from one of the rooms. So they pick up their pace. They practically book it to the master bedroom. They push open the door and Roseanne is lying naked, spread eagle tied to the bedpost, like each corner of the bedpost. 
There was a stocking, a piece of cloth twisted around her throat. There was a massive blood-stained, vomit-drenched pillow that was covering her head. She was dangling off the edge of the bed like she had managed to untie one of her um, restraints. There was blood and vomit everywhere. Roseanne was struggling to breathe. She was gasping for air. So the paramedics, they rush. They find a, a very low pulse. She was in critical condition. She had two bullet wounds in her head. She had been shot twice, strangled with a piece of cloth around her neck. And when they looked closer, a piece of fabric had been shoved so deep into Roseanne Roseanne's mouth, someone had stuffed it into her throat to make it even harder for her to breathe. It was so deep that the paramedics had to use forceps to remove the tissue. The police arrived at the scene shortly after, and then Peter and Larry. Obviously, they came separately, and they both almost instantly started accusing the other person. Peter was the more suspicious one in the eyes of the police because he immediately requested a lawyer. He said he would not say another word without a lawyer, which honestly, this sucks to say, but I don't blame him. I don't blame him at all. I mean, we have to stop using this as a way to justify that someone is sketchy or guilty because have we not seen what the police do? Yeah, exactly. Like to people like Russ Faria, remember, who was wrongfully convicted of killing his wife because he wasn't acting sad enough. So this for me is a non-issue of guilt. But this part gets weird. Peter said, I'm not talking without an attorney. Okay, fine. But then he proceeds to walk over to one of the neighbors who was watching and uh, gets in her face and is like, you didn't see me over here today, did you? She didn't respond. And then he glared at her once more to say, whatever you know, keep it to yourself. Which like, I don't know why he's threatening a neighbor for no reason at all. Either he's sus as hell or he's the rudest person that ever walked this earth and he's like trying to take his anger out on someone. I don't know. Later, Peter's mom shows up and Peter requests that his son be sent with his mother. So let, let grandma take him. For some reason, the police are like, yeah, sure, go ahead. It wasn't until later they're like, oh, shoot, what if the kid knew something? But grandma kept rewriting the story for him. So, Stephanie, you yourself said that Peter didn't kill Roseanne. Well, he didn't. So, dun 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 conspiracy time allegation time it's alleged by netizens and online investigators that peter allegedly visited roseanne's house that afternoon when she was murdered so he came right after the phone call before the police because neighbors reported seeing little peter playing outside the house by himself which roseanne would never really let him do that unless she was outside with him now none of the neighbors saw any adults go in and out of roseanne's that day but that doesn't mean anything because the killer literally entered the house so the fact that nobody saw Peter go into Roseanne's doesn't mean that he wasn't there. Why would he threaten the neighbor? And why did Peter later point to his dad when asked who yelled at him to hang up the phone? And even more suspicious, why did he change his answer to nobody? So it's speculated that there was a killer who had done everything else to Roseanne. And the allegation is that maybe Peter got there, saw his wife dying and the anger and the frustration. If, if I can't have you, no one will. And to accelerate it, he shoved tissue down her throat because the killer the real killer will later deny that he admits to so many other things but he denies shoving the tissue down her throat he admits to more than the police knew but he denies that tissue mm. why you're already gonna be executed if not life in prison you know yeah. why little peter also said that dad was at the house before and after roseanne got sick so what does that mean we don't know but first, let's talk about the other man, Larry. Larry at first didn't want an attorney. He wanted to cooperate. But the second the police started asking him, why did you shoot Roseanne? 
he's like, all right, all right, I gotta, I am way in over my head. I didn't know you guys were accusing me of shooting her. So he gets an attorney. All the while, Roseanne was rushed to the OR. The first bullet didn't penetrate the skull much. It was resting just below the skin. A nurse was easily removing the first bullet. The second bullet was the problem. It was somewhere deep inside Roseanne's brain. And when a bullet enters the brain, it doesn't just tear up everything in its trajectory. The speed of the bullet, this is like the really traumatizing part, generates heat, which literally cooks the surrounding brain tissue. Meaning it causes a lot more damage than if you were to just stab the tissue with a spike. And the second bullet was shot at the perfect angle to do the most amount of damage. It was horrible. The surgeon was able to remove the bullet, but the damage was done. Roseanne was technically alive, but she never regained consciousness. 48 hours later, her life support was shut off. She was pronounced dead just 12 days after her 33rd birthday. Listen, so many people were devastated. Roseanne had left such a positive impact on everyone in her life. She was only back at work for a short amount of time, but everyone, patients, colleagues, they all felt her absence, and it was just a heartbreaking time. All for what? Because she wanted to be a working mom? She wanted to live her life? She wanted to do her best? Like, yeah, I get it. She had an affair, but... She was so miserable in her relationship. She was with someone that wouldn't even listen to her and did not care about even meeting her fundamental needs. Larry was exhausted emotionally, mentally. He just couldn't do it anymore. He wanted to go through with his divorce, though, and try to grieve at the same time. He told Joy, listen, I'm just so tired of fighting. Let's just get this over with. Joy said, do what you have to do to be with Roseanne. I know that she's probably going to be buried out of state. So go be with her family. Go to the funeral. And when you get back, we can settle everything. I'm tired, too. But a week later, Larry finds out that the divorce was postponed. Joy, what the hell? Why did you do that? I, th- I thought I told you I still want to go through with the divorce. Because, Larry, it seems like the right thing to do. The Richardson police are going to try and hang this murder on you, and you need all the help that you can get. My family is behind you, and I want you home. Larry said he was so upset, but so exhausted. He had no fight left in him. He didn't even argue. He was just devastated that Roseanne was gone. Maybe it was that and the lack of emotional support that pushed him back to Joy because Larry and Joy reconciled. And it was uh, strange, not gonna lie. Apparently, Larry actively talked about his grief about Roseanne to Joy. Joy also got pregnant around this time and she had an abortion since their relationship was kind of rocky. But soon after, a year after reconciling, Joy files for divorce. And then six months later, she withdraws it and they're gonna try again. I mean, the whole thing is messy. Like they're nonstop filing for divorce, withdrawing it, filing, withdrawing it. They are a family attorney's wet dream, a big fat payday, if you will. Maybe they spent so much money on all their attorneys because soon enough, Joy told Larry that they were going broke. But that wasn't all. One day, Larry and his buddy Don were at the ranch property that they owned. Remember the 140-acre horse stable? Mm -hmm. And as they're driving off, they're crossing this small wooden bridge overlooking a small creek, and Larry heard his window shatter in a series of small thuds. They were being ambushed. The first bullet went through the window and narrowly missed Larry. A second bullet zipped through Larry's hair, and seconds later, Don, in the passenger seat, is screaming, I've been shot! The wound, thankfully, wasn't fatal, but it was painful and traumatic. Larry sped off. He, ha- he wasn't shot. Don had a minor injury, and when they got to the hospital, Larry saw that his entire back had shards of glass embedded in it. He was shocked. He called Joy and... You know, he was in a bad place with Joy at the time because he called her and was like, I've been shot at. She's like, oh, really? Well, whose wife are you screwing now? 
okay, cool, 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 cool. So Larry didn't think that Joy was being dramatic. He felt like someone most definitely was trying to kill him. He felt deep in his heart that the attempt was somehow connected to Roseanne's murder. But that was more than three years ago. So the method of killing was so different that the police refused to connect the two. The police felt like the attempt on Larry's life was probably just some random hunters in the woods that were firing aimlessly. That makes total sense. Sure, let's just chalk everything up to hunters and call it a day. Honestly, the police just wanted to close the case and be over with it. Life just really was not on Larry's side because shortly afterwards, he finds out that Joy has been rekindling her affair with the jogger guy. So Larry filed for divorce and this time, uh, this is the only one that would go through. They would actually get divorced. It was finalized on their 18th wedding anniversary. So the two move on with their lives. Larry even gets remarried to a woman named Jan and that's when he gets that phone call, the mysterious one that's like, the answer to the riddle is why? The police didn't care. They're like, oh, she probably just wants that 25K reward. But then that same woman called the police. She said she was interested in the reward money and she had information that the police would want to know. So the next day, Detective McGowan found himself talking to Carol Davis. Ring a bell? Mm -mm. Joy's older sister. Oh my gosh. Carol was ready to talk. And talk she did. The officers couldn't even keep up. She was just rapid firing random information, skipping back and forth, leaving gaping holes in her story, repeating herself. I mean, in the end, she literally collapsed in exhaustion in the interrogation room. And the police are like, we've learned nothing. She said that she basically was given a list of people that she needed to eliminate and to kill. Well, who gave you the list? Like some mafia boss? Are you delusional? What's going on? No, my sister, Joy. What? So first on the list was Roseanne. And then she attempted to cross off Larry's name because, well, we found out that Larry was cheating on Joy with our youngest sister, Elizabeth. Which, listen, age gap couples are fine, but cheating is not fine. And cheating on someone with their sibling is not fine. And to top off the grossness charts, back in the day when Larry and Joy first started dating, Elizabeth was like 10. She would tag along to their mall dates and they treated her like a kid. Just sounds weird to me to like have an affair with someone when you knew them since they were a kid and you're a lot older. It just sounds gross. So Larry survived, and now Carol's name was on her sister's hit list for the sole reasoning that Carol knew too much. Carol even knew that Joy was stalking Larry for two years after their marriage, during their divorce, during their reconciling process. And the rest of the list, well, Elizabeth was on there too, the other sister for sleeping with her husband. Joy literally wanted to kill everyone that was remotely close to her. The officers were dumbfounded. They never even suspected Joy for Roseanne's murder. Why? Because she passed her polygraph with flying colors. Maybe it's because she hired someone to kill Roseanne so she truly had no idea the details of the murder. Carol offered to wear a wire to catch Joy. And it was enough for the police to get a warrant. They didn't really talk about much that was new information other than the fact that Carol questioned Joy. You know, why didn't you put Larry first on the list? Why Roseanne? He was your husband. He was the one cheating. Why kill the other woman? And Joy said she didn't know. So they start digging into Joy's literal tangled web of plots to kill everyone. Joy hired a man named Joe Thomas from Oklahoma to try and kill Larry. But that Joy guy, that Joe guy was like, eh, I don't want the blood on my hands. So he hired random brothers, the Matthew brothers, James and Gary. The Matthews were given $5,000 to kill Larry. But the thing is, they were horrible shots. They were maybe like 80 feet away, fired 12-ish bullets, and only one pierced Larry's friend's elbow, which they were really horrible marksmen. But after that, it's not like they could go to the police and be like, oh my God, guess what Joy made me do? So they went on the run. They would both be sentenced to life for the attempted murder of Larry. So what about Roseanne? Was it the Matthew brothers? No, it was a man named George Anderson Hopper, but everybody called him Andy Hopper. Now, Andy's a pretty normal guy. 
for most of his childhood. In fact, he was pretty popular. He, he was raised in a loving family. But after high school, things started going downhill. He lived in Houston at the time, and he had broken into an apartment building. There was a woman living there. He exposed himself. He's just smiling at her, letting it all loose, waving it around. The woman later reported it to the police, and the police were like, well, did he rape you? Were you, like, asking for it? Were you, what were you wearing inside your own house? Then why are you crying about it? Listen, I wouldn't be mad if someone crept into my house and showed me their tits. Could, would you, Gary, would you be mad? Uh, uh, no, Gary and I would love it. Um, no, that's not weird. Just get out of here, lady. Yeah, they didn't really care at all. So Andy got off with not even a slap on the wrist. And side note, around this time, he starts doing a lot of crystal meth. It was like his favorite thing in the world to the point where he named his second daughter Crystal as a nod to how much he liked crystal meth. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine that. Yeah. He was in desperate need of money, and his dealer told him he knew someone that was looking for a hitman, but the job would only pay $1,500. $1,500. Listen, I don't know if Andy wanted to murder Roseanne for $1,500 because he needed that much or if he had a more violent side. I'm inclined to believe that it was kind of like a two for one. Like he wanted to be aggressive. He wanted to do disgusting things and he'd get paid a tiny bit because he knew that was that was not the going price for a hit. Not that I know, but it, I mean, it's ridiculously low to take a human life yeah. and to risk life in prison, you know? Exactly. So he's the one that broke into her kitchen and then he chickened out and then left and then he came back and tried again. He had a gun and this time he had a plant, like a flower arrangement. He rang the doorbell and Andy said his first impression was that Roseanne was beautiful. Roseanne thought it was a delivery. He pulled out the gun, forced her into her bedroom and uh, she was crying, why are you doing this? My son is home. He ordered her to get naked and he tied her up spread eagle on the bedpost. And he said he kneeled on the bed trying to assault Roseanne, but he ejaculated prematurely. So he went to the bathroom to clean himself up, and Roseanne tried to free herself, and he was pissed. So he started strangling her, but somehow she untied one of her hands and started swinging at Andy. So Andy had only brought the gun as a threatening weapon. He didn't actually plan to use it, but now he was panicked, so he shot her twice. And he clamped the pillow over her head until he was certain she was dead. But Andy claimed he never put the tissue down her throat. But he didn't seem that remorseful because he later told his girlfriend, you wouldn't believe the power you have when someone's life is in your hands. And with Carol's help, Andy was soon arrested. Now this is where the police screw up big time. They start questioning Andy without reading him his rights. Andy confessed during the interrogation, but it was borderline illegal. But regardless, even with this being a huge contention and scandal during the trial, the jury found Andy guilty. And not only that, he was going to be put on death row. He was finally executed after spending 13 years in prison. As for the other people involved, Joy's life took a huge hit. I think that she knew she was going down. Her son, Chris, passed away around this time. He had gotten into a car accident. Chris and his friend, a fellow passenger, they both died. And on the same night, one of Chris's friends committed suicide. It was just so traumatic. There was so much death in one night. And soon, Joy was arrested for murder, but she got out on bail. She grabbed $700,000 in cash left the country. Side note, she was sleeping with her attorney who was representing her, who also happened to be breaking some laws, so she convinced him to run away with her, and he did, very briefly. They made it all the way to Canada before deciding, wait, the guy's like, I should turn myself in, I might still be able to keep my license. 
and he left her alone. Joy starts living her best life without him, traveling the world. She went through Central America, South America, lived in Germany, France. She rented a villa overlooking scenic French hills. She bought fancy clothes and jewelry from Paris. But she was finally caught when she got into a car accident. And she was so scared, she abandoned that rental car. And the police tracked it down to her. They brought her into the police station. And the U.S. were like, thanks, guys. Give her to us. But France was like, wait. But you're going to kill her. And we don't believe in that. So she's going to stay with us. The U.S. was like, okay, fine. We pinky promise not to kill her. So then she gets extradited. And Joy was given life in prison. And she's still alive today. She's eligible for parole in December of this year. Meanwhile, Andy has been executed for the murder of Roseanne. Which, listen, death penalties are complicated. And I feel like Joy is one of those lucky people for no reason. I mean, she's so damn lucky and it's so undeserved. She's born to millionaire parents. Spoiled, then married a husband who made her a millionaire, got away with murder, traveled the world, all to escape death in the end for her crimes. Yeah, because she's the mastermind, yeah, right? Yeah, of all of it. Basically ruined. Everybody's. I mean, there was some cheating, but again, all these murder, all yeah. these killing... Listen, cheating is bad and we can be like, hey, don't do that. And maybe don't, we don't want to associate with people that are cheaters. But this is like murder for what? You could have easily gotten a divorce, lived a rich divorcee life. So why did the older sister confess? Like she just can't live with it? She, um, no, it's not that she couldn't live with it. She really wanted the $25,000. The family is weird. What? Yeah, the family is bizarre. And she felt like her sister was going to kill her next. Oh my god. I'm telling you, bizarre. And that's it for this week's mini-sode. I hope you guys enjoyed, and I'll see you guys on Wednesday for the main episode. Bye!